Hey, shareholders, welcome to another episode of Podcast 71, a podcast for and about our employee owners, our organization, and our industry. I'm Elizabeth Wheeler, your host for today, and I'm live from Studio 71. Our guest today is someone you may know from our past, or if you joined us in the past nine years or so, he's a new face to you. It's my pleasure to chat with a friend of mine and of Parksites, Scott Thomas, who recently rejoined us after a nearly 10-year hiatus. Hey, Scott, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, I thank you for joining us. You're back. Very fortunate for us. You, like I, have a diverse history with the organization. I started in marketing, and you, I believe, in sales, kind of evolving into marketing director before you left. Talk a little bit about your history with Plunkett Webster and then Parksite. I was a Tyvek specialist that I covered parts of Virginia and Maryland. And then about a year later, moved into sales. I did that for quite a while. And then during that time, I also took over national accounts. We never had a national accounts director. I think I was the first one that did that role. And from there, ended up as director of marketing eventually. And now you're back as regional director, LBM sales? Director of LBM sales, correct. I want to talk a little bit about in the building industry and probably for that matter, distribution. Tenure is commonplace. And you've been with Parksite Plunkett Webster for 20 years. What brought you back? You know, one, I didn't leave because I didn't like the industry or like Parkside. It wasn't one of those things. I just had an opportunity to run my own business. Why did I come back? You know, I was thinking about it for a couple of years, to be honest with you. You know, I was not crazy about the software industry. I didn't mind the consulting as much, but the software industry was just not my type of people, you know, and, and you start to realize who you are as you get older. And I feel like I, I fit here. The other thing I learned worth saying is that I saw a lot of other companies, business models and how they operate. And I can tell you, it made me realize that Parkside's a very good company. So made that decision easy. Well, I can agree with that. I've been here almost 24 years. So you being gone nine, almost 10, there's got to be a lot of differences since you were last walked in the doors. I would say differences from what I remember is I would just call it overall better stability and maybe knowledge of who we are and how we can grow and, and what strategies actually work. I feel that that is a little bit different. I also, when I left, it was sort of a few years in the wake of the 2008, 2009. So it was kind of tumultuous. That's the general sense that I got is just the length of experience that's still here. We kind of get it. You know, I feel like everyone knows their role and what they're doing. I think we have some of the same pitfalls we may have had, but it feels more stable. Some things that are the same. I've already been here six, seven, eight weeks and debated some of the same things we debated 20 years ago. So some of those things have not changed. And some of those things I want to address at some point too, because I have kind of an opinion on, if we're still debating it, you know, maybe it's something we need to let go. Employee ownership. We're employee-owned. Plunkett Webster was employee-owned. Was that a factor in coming back? Do you feel that when you walk back in the doors? Something you were missing perhaps? Yeah, I think it's honestly something I took for granted. This was the only job I ever had from the time I was, I don't know, 23 or 24, whenever I got hired to the time I left, I only knew ESOP. And when I left, I realized the value of that, not just for culture, but just for as a business model and what that does to commitment and how you do your job every day. And I saw a lot of companies that really didn't have anything close to that. And it was very transient. People didn't have that overarching goal to work towards. You could say maybe it's just general share growth if they're publicly traded and things like that, but it's not the same. And I didn't run into many ESOP companies after I left. And I worked with probably a couple hundred companies. So I think it's somewhat unique and we do need to value it. It was a factor in me coming back. I'm not going to say it's hundred percent. I wouldn't have come back if it didn't exist because I also like the people I work with, but it was a factor for sure. We're bigger. 
than when you left. Now we're 22, 23 locations, 750 people. We acquired another company while you we were gone that was also employee owned. So that's got to give it a different feel as well. Yeah. You know, one thing that we always were trying to figure out was diversity in terms of our product mix, how we went to market. And I feel like that acquisition in particular of APC helped with that. I think we also learned over the years that finding that next tieback is very difficult and maybe unlikely to ever happen again. So we need to have other strategies, you know, whether that's finding our way into known markets with established products and simply using our value as an organization to secure geography, wherever that may be, or through acquisition. I just think it's a good model to continue to grow. So yes, it is different. So I feel it's more diverse and also an opportunity to kind of cross-pollinate, maybe cross-sell in certain markets. Well, and you talk a little bit about finding that next Tyvek. Is it part of your focus of the next 18 months, finding another product or just working across the company? I think it's going to be a factor. Matter of fact, I just was down the hall talking to Kendall specifically about, you know, how we look for new products, what type of new products. It may not just be new products, maybe finding new companies that have a portfolio of products that we match up well with. I do think maybe there's some single products out there that can move the needle. I think more likely we are better staying in our lane doing what we're good at and finding categories where we can either bring in expertise or train expertise internally to be the best in the business at it. And that's how I think we'll win. So some of the focus will be looking at those type of opportunities. My primary focus though, overall, I'd say next year to 18 months is really to build the most effective sales organization that I can. And I think there's some softening around the edges that we can do to achieve that. And it needs to be scalable and it needs to be focused on the growth aspect of what we do. A lot of what the sales organization does is defend and maintain. I think having a real structure around how we drive and measure and collaborate around growth opportunities is where the opportunity lies. If we go back to 1998, I believe it's 25 years of early buy. You're very familiar with the concept, probably very influential in many early buys. What's the 2023 strategy? Well, one thing that's starkly different, you know, I kind of joked around, I said, where's the post-cap early buy? Because back in the day, everything had an early buy. We, even if the manufacturer didn't have a program, we made a program. And now it's very streamlined down to essentially AZEC and TimberTech. So that was different from what I remember. And I think good because it's more focused. Strategy-wise, one thing that I'm really trying to instill is that it's a short time period. We have to be reasonable about what we can really close. When I say close, meaning win a sale, you know, whether that's converting a dealer to us as a supplier or switching them out of a brand that's not ours and focusing the guys on truly progressing the pipeline. And as we get into the final weeks of this, if we don't have a good opportunity, let's move it out, close it out, let's move on. And then next year, I have some strategies to be better prepared so that by the time we walk into early buy, maybe we even have pre-commitments on some really targeted dealers that we worked on all year long versus trying to pack it into early buys. So to me, the strategy is focus, focus on the large renewals that are at risk if they are at risk, and focus on the high probability conversion opportunities that we really think we have an opportunity to win and not focus on things that are just a distraction at this point. Early buy kind of plays out. Does that give you a look into what 2023 might pan out to be? Certainly, it has a lot to do with sentiment. It's not whether we gain or lose customers so much as it's how they buy on early buy, right? One thing we've talked a lot about is will they be more out of warehouse business next year because they buy less on early buy? So when an opportunity is at risk, that doesn't mean we're necessarily at risk of losing the customer. What we're at risk at is simply a reduced or no early buy at all. And that would dictate more of a warehouse model where we keep the customer, but they're going to buy more conservatively and as needed out of warehouse. So that's what we're really watching. 
Early indications are that in some markets, we're going to see that. In others, it'll be about the same as last year. So it's, you know, there's a real hockey stick here. We're going to really know in two or three weeks what it looks like. But right now it's hard. The dealers take their time in making these decisions. So we're going to find out here in a couple of weeks. Some markets looking to be stronger than others? I wouldn't say stronger or weaker, more so in buying behavior. You know, some markets have large organizations that are multi-location under single ownership. They may make a decision that we're going to run inventory very tight and more just in time next year because we're concerned about the market. And then in other markets, you have much more independents that maybe wing it a little bit. And they're sort of buying what they did last year just to be covered. Are you working closely with logistics and purchasing right now? Are they right there in the mix knowing what to expect? Indirectly, yes, because I know you know, our accounting team and finance team, they're very keen on that shift to warehouse because that's going to cause staffing decisions, inventory decisions, what purchasing buys. So that's one. I think you'll find as the year goes on this year, one thing that I'm really focused on is a little tighter collaboration with purchasing and logistics and sometimes marketing where appropriate, preemptively collaborating on a large opportunity so that we are prepared and confident in what we offer the customer to know that we can already do it. Versus offer it to the customer and then find out, wow, that's going to be a problem for logistics. So I'm trying to sort of reverse the timing of how we do things. So I think I'll be driving towards more collaboration with those departments in the sales process. And closely with Ron and Ron, because I know that they're on those sales budgeting plans, you know, calls right now and working with Sarah and her team on what it might be looking like. Just got off one of those. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to beat that drum a little bit. I do want people to hear about the collaboration between sales and other departments. That's something that I'm going to really push. I've already had a great meeting with Jim Coulter. He's in a complete agreement. We can't operate in silos when it comes to making promises to the customer because I don't care what sales promises. If we can't deliver it, it doesn't matter. Well, we certainly look forward to what the future brings. I want to wish you good luck in your new role and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remember, if you have an idea for a podcast, you want to host, interview one of your co-owners or a customer or a supplier, you are welcome to take the mic. So until next time, we'll catch you later. Later.